Welcome to the third episode of Flying Podcast. Flying Podcast is a series of podcasts aimed at aviators and aviation enthusiasts in the UK. On this podcast, I'll be talking to Robert Knight. Robert is a flying instructor, a CAA examiner, and he also trains flying instructors. Uh, when he's not actually out teaching people to fly, Robert is a university lecturer in aviation. For those of you that are considering starting your flight training in the near future, uh, Bob's got some good advice about where to start. The prime interest in this interview uh, will be training for the JAA Private Pilot's License, that's the PPL. Um, we'll be touching on Microlite and NPPL licenses, that's the National Private Pilot's License. Um, but I'll be covering those aspects in greater detail in a later podcast. I learnt to fly about five years ago and it was actually Bob that taught me to fly. Uh, but in this case, I'll be asking the questions on behalf of uh, those absolute beginners out there that are considering learning to fly. So let's get straight into the interview with Bob. So Bob, what are the options for people uh, wanting to learn to fly? Well, simply you've got three options. You can either learn in a microlight or you can learn to gain a, a national private pilot's licence on a slightly heavier fixed-wing aircraft or you can get a European pilot's licence on a slightly heavier fixed-wing aircraft. Depends which one you want to do. Uh, the microlight is a 25-hour course. Yeah. The national private pilot's licence on a fixed-wing aeroplane is a 32-hour course plus a test and the European PPL is a 45-hour course including a test. Okay. Are they Probably all... Go on. I was going to say, are they all the same age you can start flying for all of those licenses? Uh, yes, you can. The age you can actually fly is when you can fly solo. Right. You can fly solo at the age of 16 and you can gain a license at the age of 17. So if you want to start and learn to fly, you could start at any age you like, yeah. but really it wants to be around about 15 to 16 because they're not going to let you fly solo and you won't progress in the meantime right. whilst you're waiting. Okay. So it's just the solo element that... Effectively, yes. The solo element is 16 years old and the licensing 17 years old. Right, OK. You don't want to start too soon before 16, really. OK. Uh, in terms of the medical, Bob, um, when I started, I had to get a, a Class 2 medical from a, a certified uh, aviation medical examiner. Uh, what are the medical implications, let's say, if you were to do any of the other licenses like MPA, NPPL or Microlite? OK, well, if you're going to do an NPPL or a Microlite licence you need to go to your GP and your GP can sign you off on a number of bases uh, one of which if you want to carry passengers if you can pass an HGV PSV medical then your GP can sign you off to carry passengers if you can't but he will allow you to drive a car then you can fly solo or with a qualified pilot but not with unqualified passengers if you want to go further than that and get a PPL and a, and a European PPL, then you need to get, as you said, a Class 2 JAA yep. medical, yep. which can only be done by a an approved medical examiner. Right. You can find those on the CAA website? You can indeed, yes. Okay. Uh, you need to get your medical at what point in your training? Well, you have to have a medical before you fly solo. Right. Simple as that. Okay. That's the only legal requirement for flying yes. solo. It's probably worth doing before you start training just in case you have a problem and you're not wasting any Yes, or indeed if you want to go a bit further with it and find yeah. out whether you could pass a Class 1 medical and eventually get a professional licence. Right, so if you wish to go forward to advanced flying, like CPL, flying 
passenger jets, you would need a class one for that. You would definitely need a class one for that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, if I'm looking to uh, start learning to fly, obviously I need to find somewhere to get trained. How would I go about finding an aerodrome with a with a flying school? Okay, well, one place to look is the Civil Aviation Authority's website. They have a list on there of all registered flying schools. You could look there. You can look in uh, aviation magazines like Pilot, Flyer, Today's Pilot. They'll have adverts for various flying schools. Yeah. I would suggest that you contact some of these schools and start talking to them mm -hmm. and find out what they offer and what they can do for you. And preferably, if you can, talk to people who've been taught by those schools to find out how good the school really is. Yeah. Let's say you have shortlisted uh, two or three uh, flying schools at different uh, airports, or maybe even at the same airport. What are the sort of questions you would ask um, of the flying school? Let's say you turn up and you, know, you just want to ask them some questions that you know find out the quality of the flying school. Right, well, first I want to know about the instructors. I'd like to know how experienced the instructors are because an instructor can be teaching people as little as 200 hours under his belt, or slightly more, really, 230. Uh, I would also like to know how long the instructor's likely to stay, because mm -hmm. swapping from one instructor to another instructor is never really a good idea. Yep. Preferably what you're looking for is a career instructor, which is a fairly rare person, yep. who's prepared to stay in it for the rest of his career. Mm -hmm. Those are very rare. Yeah. If you can find one of those, those are the best guys to go for. Okay. Somebody who's not interested in going beyond flying training. And of course, uh, I think in my day there was a lot of uh, flying instructors that were there just to build their hours to move on to a, a commercial career. That's true, but these days it's possible to get into a commercial, in, uh, commercial environment without a lot of hours. You can get in again with just over 200 hours. You can become... Uh, a co-pilot in a 737 with a little more than 200 hours total. Wow. So you don't get too many people these days building hours, unless they can't afford the course, <laughs> then they do yeah. need to build hours. Right. So you've spoken to the club, you uh, found out which instructors you think uh, are most appropriate to teaching you to fly. Are there any particular questions you would need to pose to, to pick your instructor? Similar questions to the ones you just asked before. Right. I'd like to know what that instructor's going to do in the future. Okay. Because I wouldn't want him to disappear part way through my training because yeah. then I'll have to go to another instructor yeah. who won't know me, who won't know what I've done in the past. Okay. He's unlikely, if I was at a solo standard, to send me solo till he's flown with me for at least an hour mm -hmm. just to make sure that he knows that I'm okay. So losing one instructor and gaining another will cost you at least one hour of flying time. Right. It's quite expensive. It's expensive, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, when I uh, learned to fly, there was a choice of a few aircraft. There's the usual uh, Cessnas and uh, Pipers, which are sort of very common in the flying schools, plus I had the, the choice of a, a Grub. Uh, what influences your choice of aircraft when you learn to fly? Well, normally if I'm teaching somebody, what I do with them is early on in the training, I'll ask them to try a high-wing aeroplane and a low-wing aeroplane and simply pick whichever they prefer to be yeah. in. Yeah. People have usually have a choice between one of the two, and a preference they develop for one or the other. Mm -hmm. I prefer two-seat aeroplanes generally because the handling of them is a little bit more spirited and they teach you more about flying. Yeah. Four-seat aeroplanes tend to be more orientated towards touring, yeah, and so they're a little bit more docile, a little bit yeah. more stable, mm -hmm. and therefore you don't learn quite as much as you might do in one of those as you wouldn't say a two-seat grub aeroplane. Yeah. 
but there's not, in my experience, a huge difference is there between the high wing Cessnas and the, the low wing Pipers. There's not a massive difference in performances or in stability. Not usually, really, no, no. There's not a huge amount of difference. The Pipers are more stable than the uh, than the Cessnas in many ways. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. In terms of frequency, uh, Bob, how often do you think you need to fly in order to progress? I, I remember when I was learning to fly, I tried to to book a, a lesson every week, but due to weather, aircraft unavailability. It didn't work out that way, but in order to progress, how often do you think you need to fly? Well, really, I like to fly as often as possible, but it tends to depend on, on your budget. Yeah. In terms of weather and other problems which you can be presented with, I would tend to book twice as often as you intend to fly, yeah. because the weather will cancel quite a few of them for you. Yeah. Generally, once a week is a good idea, if you can afford it, mm -hmm. because then you remain current from the previous time and you don't get into a point where you've started to forget what you learned before. Yeah. However, once every two weeks is not too bad, but the better, the more often the better really. But one thing you do have to do is to integrate the ground school subjects with the flying. There's no point in getting a long way ahead with the flying and not keeping up with air law, navigation, meteorology and all the other subjects. Okay. Uh, in terms of time it takes a student to, to go solo, is there, is there an average? Well, I wouldn't say that this sort of criteria is, is a good one to measure. In, in the past, if you took somebody like a military student, they might go solo in five hours yeah. or less. Uh, different things apply these days, so different rules and different ways of doing things. Really, I'd look at it in terms of how long will it take you to do the PPL and complete that, rather than how long before you get a solo. Yeah. Because there's quite a lot of stuff to cover before you fly solo. But if you wanted a number to it, uh, between about 10 and 15 hours, I would expect. Yeah. Uh, and you just touched on it there, but how many hours do you actually need to, to get your licence? Varies according to the licence, but yep. the absolute minimum for a European JA licence is 45 hours including the test. If you want a national private pilot's licence on the, on the same type of aircraft, then it's 32 hours plus a test. If you were flying a microlight fixed with microlight, it would be 25 hours. Okay, Bob, how about um, tests and examination? How many uh, exams are there? Well, in total, there are seven examinations, okay. uh, written examinations, plus one oral examination. So the written examinations you've got are air law, navigation, meteorology, flight performance and planning, human performance and limitations, uh, aircraft general and principles of flight, and the last one is communications, and it's the communications one that also has an oral test as well. Okay, that's the radio... That's the radio. radio plane. That's the, the one radio, I always yeah. find the most difficult. It's the one everybody dislikes. And they are all eminently passable, aren't they? There's no excuse for failure. <laughs> well, if you're taking one of the CA exams, they're all multi-choice examinations, apart from the oral. Yeah. Uh, you get one question, four answers, and you've got to pick the right answer. Now, the pass mark is 75%, so you've got to make sure you know it before you take the exam. Yeah. Okay, and it's all worthwhile stuff learning. It's not. There's nothing really that's. No, it's all practical stuff. It's all useful in the future. There's yeah. nothing you're not going to use again. Yeah, it's not like your school maths. Or... No, it's nothing <laughs> like that. It's 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 a practical practical examinations to make sure you're equipped to do what you're trying to do. Great. And you do have to take your law before you go solo. Is that correct? Uh, not legally, no. But most schools will insist that you pass air law before they let you out on your first solo, so that right. you know things like the rules of the road, collision avoidance, those sorts of things. Makes sense. Similarly, before you go off a navigation solo, 
exercise. Most schools would insist that you pass navigation. It's logical, isn't it? <laughs> Does make a bit of sense, yes. <laughs> and uh, in addition to written tests and the, the RT oral, are there any other hoops that you have to jump through? Like, uh, are there, there's flying tests? Oh, there are definitely tests, yes. Before you can actually take the test, though, what you've got to do is complete the PPL course in its entirety, which means you must have passed all the exams which I mentioned before. You must have flown a qualifying cross-country course, which means you've got to fly between three different aerodromes. So you leave your base aerodrome, go to another one, then to another one, and back to your base aerodrome. Okay. The length of that flight must be 150 nautical miles. You've got to get a certificate signed by the air traffic controllers at the other airports yeah. to say that you did a nice job when you arrived and you caused trouble. <laughs> you have also got to get yourself an RT licence, a radio telephony licence, which is part of the exams we talked about. And then you can go to an examiner and he'll put you through a flight test. Flight test will test you in terms of general handling of the aircraft and in terms of navigation, so there'll be elements of both of them within the test. Okay, so it's like your driving test, but obviously in the air with a lot more elements involved. It is, and it usually takes, if you do it all in one go, it takes two hours, but you can split it into two pieces. You can split it into the general handling side of the test, and you can split it into the navigation side of the test if you wish, that's up to you. It takes a little longer if you do that. And if you are judged to have failed one of those elements, you can go back and do one element again? Right, well they split the test into five separate sections. Right. If you fail one element of a section, and only one element of one section, yep. then they would deem that as a partial pass. If you fail more than one section, then you fail completely. Okay. So if you get a partial pass, you have to go back and redo that part of the test. Right. As I noticed to my cost when I was learning to fly, Weather plays a great deal of uh, a part in that. Obviously, if the weather's not so good, there's low cloud, it's raining. Uh, where where I uh, learned to fly it was a, a grass field, so obviously that was waterlogged, it was cancelled. What do you do when the weather's bad? Well, a lot of people simply don't turn up, which is a shame, really. <laughs> because that's an ideal time to go over things that you need to know about. Often when you're in, engaged in the flying training part of it and the weather's nice it's a fairly hectic business everybody's getting along with it and trying to go flying when they can yeah. but if you're studying the PPL syllabus and studying the very for the various exams then you should come across a number of problems that you don't understand so what mm -hmm. I suggest people do is that when they get to something within the PPL syllabus that they're not sure about simply write it down then when you get a bad day and you've got enough of these points we can spend an hour on the ground going over them yeah because there's a lot of uh briefing that you can do, you can do a walk round can't you, when you, you're first starting out? Indeed, you can do that, yes, I can show you how to check around the air, uh, a correction, I can show you how to check around the aircraft and make sure that the aircraft is serviceable, I can show you all the documentation. Yeah. There are lots and lots of things that we can do on the ground. Ideally, if you want to pass the test in as few hours as possible, you would take a long briefing for each of the exercises, so the exercise is explained in detail over a period of about an hour, yeah prior to you completing the exercise, preferably not on the same day. Which sort of brings me on to my next question, which is how long does a lesson last and, and how is that usually broken down? It varies from school to school. The minimum it should last for a one-hour flight is an hour and a half. And in one and a half hours there is barely enough time to do what you need to do. It was always tight for me, an hour and a half, yeah. Yes, it is, and that's because the schools are trying to uh, give you flying lessons as cheaply as possible. Mm -hmm. 
Some schools offer two-hour lessons. This allows the instructor to give you more information over a long, longer period of time and probably do a better job, but you might find that uh, they are more expensive as a result of that. Something there that um, impinges on the, the amount of time you need for your lesson is uh, what size of airfield do you learn to fly at? I mean, obviously, as, as I mentioned, I learned to fly at a grass strip with a minimal air traffic control. Do you go for that, or do you go for a bigger commercial aerodrome like an international where there's a lot more traffic, a lot more ATC? Well, both of them have their advantages. The advantage of a small strip, which is outside controlled airspace, means that as soon as you're airborne, you can get on with it straight away. Mm -hmm. You don't have delays on the ground, so you get more flying. If you go to a big international airport like, say, Manchester Airport, you could spend 20 minutes and as much as 30 minutes waiting to get off the ground. Yep. When you return, if they've got uh, commercial traffic inbound, which they usually have, they'll often keep you holding, waiting for that traffic to land, because you come second place at the moment, Fred. Yep. The upsides of flying out of a big airport like that are simply that you get used to a busy commercial air environment. And if you're interested in going further and professionally into the into aviation, then that could be a good thing. And you learn your radio telephony at a high level from day one, really, don't you? Oh, you without a doubt. Uh, if you take somebody who's learned and gained their PPL at Manchester Airport, their radio telephony procedures are far better than people who've learned at Little Grass Airstrip. Yeah, that was my problem when I first graduated from Barton, going into you know a bigger airport. It was quite daunting talking to their air traffic control. That's true, but you also find that people from large airports find going into small grass strips <laughs> daunting as well. Yeah. So ideally, really, what you want to do, if you possibly can, is to fly from more than one airport. Yeah. If you can find a school that does that, that's ideal. Okay. The question on everybody's lips is, how much does it cost to learn to fly? And how long's a piece of string, yeah. Okay, well, it really depends on the sort of effort. You can analyse it in terms of, oh, it's a 45-hour course and it's costing £120 an hour, so therefore it is 120 times 45. Fortunately, it doesn't usually work out like that. It usually means that most people take about 70 hours. Often the reason they take 70 hours is because they don't do enough ground school work before they go flying. An aeroplane is a very poor place in terms of being a classroom, but unfortunately, if you want to learn to fly, it's the only classroom available. Yeah. So... It depends upon you. How much effort you put in on the ground before you get into the aeroplane will have a great effect upon how long it takes to learn to fly. The other thing, of course, is the older you are, the longer it will take, just like anything else. And are there other bits of equipment that you need to you know, put into your calculation? Uh, there's bits and bobs like you need your own headset, possibly? or It's preferable, because if you use one of the school's headsets, it's going to take a bit of a battering. Mm -hmm. Uh, plus, there's always, if you, there's always the hygiene aspect of it. Somebody else has been using it. In fact, quite a lot of people have been using it. Yeah. So, it's nice if you can get your own, but it's not usually necessary. The sort of things you will need are a map, navigation computer, protractors, rulers, pencils, books to learn from. You'll need to take a medical, all sorts of other things. Those extras can cost you... Unfortunately, up to about a thousand pounds. Gee whiz! If you include like, well, if you include the licensing fee as well, yeah. In terms of on top of the cost of flying lessons, you're looking at probably around about a thousand pounds for equipment, licensing fees, medicals, etc. Right. One thing that was mentioned to me when I was thinking of uh, starting out on my flying training career uh, was why not go to Florida? You can do it in three weeks, half the cost, great weather, fly every day. Pluses and minuses for that, Bob. 
Uh, definitely, yes. Uh, certainly Florida is much cheaper than it is in the UK. Aircraft are cheaper, fuel is cheaper, everything seems to be cheaper in relative to flying. The downside of going to Florida is that the weather is so good that if you intend to fly in the UK, when you get back here, you'll find the weather frightens you to death. <laughs> Other things, they are they have different preference, not different preferences, but I have noticed there is a tendency amongst American trained students. They're not quite as good as people who've trained in this country in many ways. Not just in terms of dealing with the weather, but in terms of handling the aircraft. I came across one guy, for instance, who'd been told not to use the rudder in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Only to use it on the ground for steering the aeroplane. Okay. Um, some schools in the US have a particularly bad reputation right. and produce some particularly poor quality pilots. Okay. You need, but again, there are schools in the UK which will do exactly the same. You need to select a flying instructor fairly carefully. Okay. See so if you can find somebody who's actually interested in teaching you to fly. That can occur in the US as well. You can find somebody who's good at it too. Main real difference, I suppose, apart from the cost, is the weather. One uh, additional thing I was thinking about um, for flying in Florida, is, you know, or even in this country, is there any resource on the web where you can find out about other people's experiences of schools? Are there any you know, websites, forums that you can go to? Yes, probably the very best one is called P. Prune, Professional Pilots Rumour Network. Yeah. And you'll find that on the net. And it's not just about professional pilots. You'll find forums for private pilots for just about everything you can do. OK, well, uh, thanks very much for that information, Bob. That's a pleasure. Well, thanks again to Bob for his time there. Uh, hopefully we'll be chatting to Bob again, covering questions about more advanced flight training. Uh, if you have any suggestions for subjects, uh, maybe you've got a question, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, please feel free to drop me a line. Uh, you can contact me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. That's steve at flyingpodcast, or one word, .co.uk. Well, that's it for the third episode. Hopefully you'll find the quality of the podcast is gradually improving. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to hearing from you and speak to you again soon. All of the music on this episode was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network. Check it out at music.podshow.com.